Father, we thank you that our refuge can be found in you, that you can shelter us, you can protect us, you can bless and guide our lives. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would speak very powerfully in our innermost being, that we'd hear the clarity of your voice, not, not the voice of the pastor, but your voice, Father. We'd hear you speaking into our lives, that you would challenge us, that you would identify for us areas in our lives that maybe we're not surrendered to you, that we're really fighting your will. And I pray tonight that our confidence in you would increase that our willingness to surrender to your purposes and will for our lives, Lord, would free us from a lot of the emotional turmoil that maybe we're experiencing tonight. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. How many know that we're deeply impacted by what happens around us? We're shaped by it. You know, we've all grown up. We've been shaped by the values of our family. Isn't that true? We look at life through a certain lens. We've been shaped by our educational system. And I would even say today that a lot of us, more than we realize it, have been shaped by the media. You know, we watch movies, we watch television, isn't that true? And, you know, they affect the way we think, they affect the way we perceive life. You know, one of the reasons why, you know, pastors keep saying to their congregations, you know, read the Bible, it's because when you and I really understand Scripture, we begin to look at life through a different lens, you know, all of us, some of us, you know, we, we actually wear glasses, so we're, we're helped in our vision. Isn't that true? Aren't you glad for the uh, ability to, you know, give greater clarity, you know, especially as you get a little older, your eyes begin to, you know, start fading on you, and you need this assistance. And so I believe that as we're looking through the lens of Scripture, we're looking at life through a certain vantage point. We're seeing life through the eyes of God. We're looking at life the way God sees it, the way God thinks about things, and we begin to change the way we perceive life and think about life. Now, you know, as Canadians, we have been deeply affected by Americans, you think that's true? Well, let me give you an example. You know, I actually lived in the States for a number of years, so I have, I have an idea. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, you learn when you're studying in the States, I actually, I graduated from high school in the U.S. I moved there when I was 16 years old, so I had to take things like U.S. history and Washington State history because I lived in the state of Washington. And you had to learn things like the Constitution. And one of the statements on the American Constitution goes that it speaks of the inalienable rights of all men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, this is a declaration that there's, there's, there's a sense that all of us have this right, you know, to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, how many know that Americans take this pursuit of happiness pretty intently? That we're really concerned about pursuing happiness. As a matter of fact, I would say, as, you know, as Canadians, we've really embraced that, that, you know, there's something inside. I would even go beyond Canada and the United States. I would talk about deep within the human heart, there's a desire to be happy. What do you think? Aren't, aren't, you know, from the Philippines, don't you guys want to be happy? Yeah, amen. They're, they're nodding, yes, of course. Everybody, you know, we want to be happy, right, Dragon? Even the people in your country. Happiness is a desire. We all want to experience happiness in our life. The only problem is, is how we approach it. You know, often we think that our idea of what will make us happy doesn't always work. Anybody experience that? You know, you tried something, you thought it would make you happy, you went for it, and you found out you were miserable afterwards. Anybody have that experience? Come on now. Sure, some of us. We went after it. And you know what? We thought, this is what's going to make me happy, and I went for it, and I got what I wanted, and I was not happy. 
Because Jesus, in his Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about what really you know, creates a sense of happiness in our lives. You know, isn't it interesting? It's, it's kind of an irony, isn't it? He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Actually, that word blessed actually is the same word as we get for happy. So some translations say happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How many think that's kind of an unusual way of thinking about happiness? You know, here I am sad, but you see the Beatitudes are teaching us that we're sad over the condition of our soul. We're sad because we've sinned against God. And when we recognize that, most people don't even recognize that, but when we come to that stage in our life where we recognize that our sin has violated something deep within our own hearts and it has alienated us from our creator, and when we discover that, And when we mourn over that, then God's grace fills our hearts and there's a freedom and a love that fills our souls. It's a very powerful thing that comes into our lives. You know, we live with this kind of an independent mentality from God. I think this has gone on not just, you know, in our present current culture, not in just in North America. I believe that there's a sense from the very beginning of the human experience that man has had a desire to be independent from God. You turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, where you have a man and a woman, they're walking in perfect union with God, they have fellowship with God, they know God's voice, you know, they're in a perfect state, in a perfect environment, and yet, you know, God had spoken to them. He said, you can eat of all of the trees in the garden, but there's one tree that I'm not going to allow you to eat, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people, you know, I've always thought about this, why would God stick one tree, you know, it's like telling a little kid, you know, don't eat from the cookie jar, you know, it's the kind of mentality, right? But no, there was a sense that man had had to have a choice whether he would obey God or not. Because you see, when we have a choice, it gives us an expression, can we really express love towards God? So God puts this tree there and he says, you know, I don't want you eating from this tree because then you'll have the knowledge of evil. And how many know the story? You know, Satan comes in the form of a serpent, tempts the woman, and, uh, she co- and she and her husband succumb to the temptation. They eat of the tree, and immediately now they know the knowledge of evil. And the moment you know the knowledge of evil, it's not a good knowledge. You know, there's something beautiful about innocence. There's something terrible about discovering evil for the first time and experiencing it in your life. And all of a sudden, they recognize their own barrenness of soul, their alienation from God. So, you know, the, the basic idea is that people today want to do what they want. There's a real sense of independence. You can sense it all around. People are making their own decisions. How many remember when you turned 18 years old? You know, wow, I'm on my own. I don't have to, you know, when you moved out from your family, you can do what you want to do. I'm an adult. Finally, I can do anything I want to do, right? And so you go out and make choices, and sometimes you make the wrong choices. And you experience the pain, of that experience, you know, you thought, wow, I'm finally free to make my own decisions. The result is not what we think. And I think in our culture today, many people who are disregarding God, who are making terrible decisions, are battling anxieties, despair, hopelessness, depression. You know, a lot of the medical conditions people are battling with today is actually originating out of a spiritual foundation. As a matter of fact, I was reading something about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones recently. He was a very famous Welsh preacher, pastored in London for many, many years. He was a medical physician. He became a Christian, and eventually he recognized that even in his medical practice that so much of the root issues that he was addressing were actually spiritual in nature, and God used that to call him into the ministry. He became a very effective communicator of the gospel, became a very good pastor, and he died in 1981, you know, 
powerful. But the basic idea of our culture is that we're all free to choose whatever way we want to live as long as we can stay within the laws of the land. And even then, when we don't agree with the laws, we challenge them. And we desire to change them to suit our own desires. Isn't that kind of what's happening in our culture today? Isn't that kind of where we're living? We have no thought of, you know, the long-term ramifications of any of these decisions. We're just going, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to do now. And we're going for it with no thought of the ultimate outcomes of these decisions. There's a sense that we have broken free from restraints of the ancient times and superstitions. You know, if you talk to most people today, this is kind of how people think. The ancient peoples, you know, they just didn't know any better. They were somewhat ignorant. You know, now that we have technology and science, you know, we can understand, you know, why people are dying. You know, we, we know about germs. And, and so you have this whole sense in our culture today that science can really explain most of life that we really don't need God in the equation. And that's what you get when you talk to a lot of people. And there's a, they're kind of hiding behind this, what I call a false shield that's not really protecting them because there's a lot more that you know, science cannot explain. And there's a spiritual reality that science does not understand. You know, we even perceive ourselves to be so much wiser than our predecessors. Even scholars of today challenge the older concept of what Christ did and what the Bible says. That's amazing to me. You know, uh, there's a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman who was once a conservative scholar, has turned his back on that, has written, written such books as Misquoting Jesus. And his latest book that just come out recently, like last month, listen to the name of his new book. This guy teaches in a university in the United States in the religious department. Here's the name of the book. Jesus Before the Gospels. How the earliest Christians remembered, changed, and invented their stories of their Savior. Now, this is what he's teaching young people in college. He's teaching people that, you know what? Listen, you know what? Jesus never claimed to be God, according to some of these more modern scholars. He never claimed that. As a matter of fact, he would, these people would argue that it was the believers, the early believers who literally said that Jesus was God. But Jesus himself never declared it. I want you to remember that thought in your mind. But here's what I'm gonna tell you about people who are so smart Thinking themselves to be wise, the Bible says they become fools. You know, there was a minister about 100 years ago, his pastor, you know, he, he kind of taught the, the gospel of living the good life, you know. And you have, you know, it was very popular about 100 years ago. Pastors and preachers would teach that, you know, Jesus lived an exemplary life and that, you know, as a Christian, all you had to do was live a life like Jesus. And that if you lived a good enough life, you went to heaven. And that was kind of the teaching but you know, that's a, that's a very powerless gospel. And one day it actually came to this man's attention because he was pastoring and he lived in a pretty nice house and it was a very blistery night and he heard this pounding at the door. He went over to the door and here was a poor little girl and she said, Pastor, you have to come. My mother's dying. You have to get her through. He said, get her through to what? Get her through to heaven, Pastor. She doesn't know Jesus and she, she's dying and she needs to get right with God and can you please come? And she entreated him and finally this man, you know, he's a pastor, right? He's got to do something. So he goes with her and he comes to this you know, poor hovel where the mother's living and he gets there and he starts telling this woman, you know, all you need to do is live like Jesus, to live a good enough life. She said, Pastor, it's too late for me. I'm dying. I don't have time to live a good enough life. And I haven't lived a good enough life. And I need to be, I need to know that God is going to accept me. Can you tell me something that will, you know, ease the trouble in my soul? Pastor, I'm so overwhelmed with shame and guilt. 
And then all of a sudden he remembered on his mother's knee as a child. He had heard the gospel as a child, but he had put that stuff away as if it was beyond him, beyond his understanding, beyond his intellect. And so he began to remember the wonderful story of how Jesus came and how he died for our sins. And as he began to tell the story, she said to him, oh, pastor, now you're talking. Now this is making sense to me. This, this beautiful message of Jesus Christ coming and dying for my sin and bringing this wonderful message of grace. And as he was sharing the gospel with this woman that he remembered as a child, not only did she come through to Christ, but he himself found faith in Christ. You see, we can get so smart, we actually become stupid. You know, and I see that so often, you know. How many have actually noticed that? Some people are so smart, they're stupid. Anybody notice that? And what I mean by that statement is a lot of times people have a, an amazing understanding of life, but they don't have any wisdom. They don't really know what to do in certain situations. They make terrible decisions. And that's because there's no fear of God in their hearts. You know, why are we shocked by human rebellion against God? The prophet Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. I would argue tonight that by nature, you and I are rebels. By nature, we want to do our will. We want to do what we want to do. And everything's fine if what we want to do is what God wants us to do. But how about those moments in our life when what we want to do is not what God wants us to do? And at that moment, there's a battle that goes on inside of our souls, does it not? That's what we're talking about. There's a sense of rebellion in our life. And unless there's a power greater than ourselves, we tend to succumb to our own human sinful desires. Psalm 2 reminds us how futile human rebellion against God really is. That's why I had it read it. It says, why do the nations conspire? And one translation says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Listen, when you and I live a life apart from God, when you and I try to live a life apart from God's purposes and will in our life, it's all vanity. It's all gonna come to nothing. It's really emptiness in our life. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, I want to stop and look at that topic, that, that title for just a minute. This word anointed one, that's a very powerful term. As a matter of fact, the anointed one is the word we get Christ from. Actually, Christ means anointed. You know, in Hebrew, we would call it the Messiah. So I want to just say to you, for all of you that may not, some people don't know this, Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' surname. How many knew that? That's not his surname. You know, some of you probably thought it was. Let me point something out to you. Jesus is his first name, his given name, his proper name, but Christ is actually the fact of his position or his function. He is the anointed one. And when you and I declare that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is, in Hebrew, the Messiah, what we're saying is this is the anointed one of God. We're recognizing a certain position with God. Now notice Psalm 2. This is written to people in the Old Testament. This is written to Jewish people. It says, you know, they gather together against Yahweh, that's the name of God, the proper personal name of God, and against his anointed one. So obviously that's a distinctly different person that they're talking about. I'm bringing this up because we're going to look at a text tonight that if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand the story that I'm going to bring out from the New Testament that we're going to be examining in just a moment. It says, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. What are they saying? I don't want the restraints of serving God. I don't want their moral restraints of doing the right thing. The anointed one 
or the one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. In other words, that is a very bad decision on our part because you see our sin is actually destroying ourselves and it affects other people in a very negative way. And then he rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath. And then he says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, how many are getting a sense as I'm reading this that this psalm is actually speaking quite a bit about Jesus? Listen to what verse 8 says. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to the anointed one. He's talking to the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Now, you know, how do you think most people read this when they didn't believe in Jesus? You gotta put somebody else in the equation, right? And I think a lot of times Jewish people put the nation of Israel in the place of where Christ is. And that's how they interpret the Old Testament, if you didn't understand that. Um, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss. Now, that word kiss the sun is an interesting word, kiss. You know, it's the word pay homage to. It's the idea of worship the sun. Now, let me ask you a question. Who are we to worship? Yeah, Jesus, but... In, in essence, when, uh, when the angels you know, come to prophets and the people want to worship an angel, what do the worship say? Worship God alone. See, only one person really deserves worship, and that's God himself. You and I are not allowed to be worshiping angels or people or anybody else. Now here it says, kiss or worship the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We understand this as a Christian through a filter, through a lens that we're talking about Christ here. We know that this is a, what we call a messianic psalm, okay? You guys all follow that? We're gonna look at another one here in a moment. But I wanna just kind of bring this all out because I wanna show you something, that this stuff is in the Old Testament. So, how many recognize then that what is really going on in life is actually far deeper and more profound than most people realize? That there's a spiritual ent environment that you and I usually do not see. You know, I was reading this week and it really struck me. Three different characters in the Bible, actually four, I can think of come right to my mind, where the heavens opened up for them and they saw things in the spiritual arena. Remember the day that Jesus was being baptized, just like we see people being baptized here? Well, when John the Baptist was watching Jesus being baptized, the Bible said he saw heaven open. He saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Remember that? Remember that statement? Then I read another portion this week where Peter was on a roof praying and all of a sudden it says, and the heaven opened and a sheet came down. And he saw this amazing vision, you know, where he, wasn't supposed to, where he was supposed to eat these unclean animals. That's found in Acts chapter 10. The heavens were open. Then I read another story in the Old Testament of a servant of the, the prophet Elisha. Elisha kept telling the king where the Syrian forces were being deployed. How many know that's kind of a bad thing when you're fighting an army and uh, the army knows every move you're making? The king probably thought there was a spy in the camp. He goes, I can't make a decision without this enemy army knowing what's going on. They said, you know what it is? There's a prophet in the land and he's, he's telling the king where you're deploying. The man, you know, of course, in modern age, we'd go, that's just superstition. But you see, in the ancient time, people had a different understanding. They believed that, you know, there were spiritual entities and forces at work, much unlike us moderns who, you know, we think we know more than they do. All of a sudden, they decide, we're going to go get this prophet. So he sends an army to capture one man. I, I love this story. It's found in, um, I think, 1 Kings chapter 6. 
are right in that zone. And so here's Elijah, Elisha, sorry, and, and, and so they, they bring this army, and the army surrounds the community where the prophet's staying. And the servant of Elisha says, wow, we're in trouble now. There's a whole army here to get us. And then he says, no, relax. There's more for us than there are for them. He goes, what are you talking about? And Elisha says, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And immediately at that moment, his eyes began to be opened and he could see behind the natural realm, in the spiritual realm, a heavenly host of army. The angel army was surrounding the natural army. How many know God's army is far more powerful and greater than the army of humanity? You know, so he got a vision into the spiritual realities. Why is this so important? Because there's a spiritual reality that you and I are living in every single day of our lives. But most of us, I would say all of us, unless God does something supernatural, we're blind to what's really transpiring around us. There's a spiritual reality. Not that we walk in fear, but that we know as a child of God, we know that, you know, God is, you know, camped around us, you know. I mean, I have read so many interesting stories of missionaries, you know, who were actually in jeopardy when, you know, you know people were going to destroy them that these people decided not to. And later on, they found out they said they, you had all these big people standing around you that were glowing. You know, there's those all kinds of stories of God's angelic forces protecting his people. It's a very powerful thing. So, you know... Many in our community are trying to live free from moral restraint. We know that that's true. Yet biblical Christianity speaks of a freedom that comes from serving God, a freedom from our real enemy. And it's not just Satan. We have another enemy. You go, what's that enemy? Ourselves. Our sinful nature. How many go, that's a big problem. You know, I, I, can, I love to blame other people for my problems, but generally I am the culprit right? And we get ourselves in a lot of trouble because we're the ones that are making the wrong decisions. You know, it's easy to blame other people. That's why as a pastor, I keep telling us, hey, take ownership for your own stuff because you're never going to get beyond the junk in your life if you don't take responsibility for it. Now, a few weeks ago, I kind of advanced us in the gospel of Mark to the story of Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. I want to pull us back a little bit and talk about what led up to all of that. And so today, in particular, I want to answer, I want to look at a question that Jesus asked. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the questions that Jesus' opponents asked him. Remember that? The Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees all came with different questions. You know, the Pharisees thought they would entrap Jesus by saying, you know, who should we pay taxes to? Jesus had a great answer. He says, well, what? give me the money there. What, whose face is on the coin? Well, that's Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to him. How many know? You can't answer that. I mean, they thought they had him, but Jesus found his way out of it. Then later on, the Sadducees came and they had... Now, I have a teacher used to say they're sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, you know? That's kind of a sad thing, isn't it? Anyways, they came to Jesus and tried to frame a question to talk about how ridiculous it was, you know, that there would be a thought called the resurrection. And they painted this picture, and Jesus said, you know what, you guys don't know the power of God, neither do you know the scriptures. He says, as a matter of fact, because they were talking about somebody's, you know, the Levitical uh, responsibility of marriage, you know, a person takes his sister's, his brother's wife, you know, and they kept doing this. Whose kids are going to, you know, whose, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Jesus goes, listen, in eternity, we're not going to have marriage as we know it on earth. You guys just don't understand some things. You know, everything that they asked Jesus, he had an answer for. Isn't it great to know that Jesus has an answer for our questions? He has an answer to the questions. He really does. But you know what? Jesus now asks the question. I love this. This is what we're turning to. So Jesus now looks at 
a passage of scripture. He's gonna use a passage of scripture to ask a question of the biblical scholars of his day. And it's found here in chapter 34. It says here in the second part of 1234, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I mean, that came to the end. No more questions. But now Jesus begins to ask his question. And so I wanna look at a, a theme tonight And it goes something like this. Why can Jesus make a demand on my life? Why is it that Jesus has the authority to tell me how to live? I might think that might be a good question. Why is it that Jesus can tell me what to do and what not to do? Why is Jesus the one that can call the shots in my life? How many think that might be an important thought? Because I think a lot of us struggle with this. You know, who does he think he is? Who does Jesus think he is? Well, I want to give you three reasons why Jesus can demand everything from our lives, okay? And the first one is simply because of who he is. I want you to know that Jesus is more than a man. He's more than just a principle of what people should be like. He's more than just a good teacher. Jesus is more than a prophet. In reality, Jesus is God in the flesh, come to provide a way for you and I to live forever with God, to be in union with God to change the whole essence of our life. He has the power to change our lives. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. That's not to say something, uh, and that's not to say something about what others said about him. See, some people would say, no, that's what people said about him. I wanna show you tonight, Jesus knew who he was and actually it got him into trouble. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the Jewish people in Jesus' day fully understood what he was talking about and that's why they crucified him. And I'm going to show you that from Scripture tonight. So let's take a look at this. Jesus, now, in this 12th chapter, he asked the question, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he said, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, or the Messiah, interchangeable idea, or the anointed one, is the son of David? Now, how many go, that's such a scintillating question. Isn't that right? How many, you know, that that really makes you have an appreciation. That's a very profound question. For most of us in this room, we go, I don't get it. I don't have an understanding. Why did Jesus ask this question? What is it about this question that actually is so profound? And I want to show it to you. Because, you know, a lot of times we read texts of Scripture and we read things and we go, I don't get this. I don't understand this passage. And don't feel bad. I didn't understand this for a long time, okay? This is one of these texts of scriptures you read over and over again. You just don't really understand the essence and the significance of a text of scripture. But let me try to bring it out. What Jesus, you know, I like what James Edwards says, you know, or Ralph Martin says, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. Jesus asked the question, all right? Now, the issue is really about the identity. Now, we know that when Jesus was walking on the road to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember that? It's found in Matthew 16. And his disciples said, well, you know, some people say you're Jeremiah, some say another Old Testament prophet, some say you're Elijah. But Jesus, well, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, now the spokesperson, stands up and he says, you know who you are? You're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Jesus said, you know, Peter, I never told you this. As a matter of fact, this was revealed to you by my Father which is in heaven. You are a very blessed person to have that revelation. Now I'm gonna say this, that when you and I have that same revelation of who Jesus is, that is a revelation given to us by God. We should so appreciate the fact that God has revealed who Christ is to us. That's a very powerful thing. Now, 
James Edwards says this issue about identity that Jesus raised privately with the disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi is now raised publicly in the temple of Jerusalem. Jesus is now raising the issue of his identity to the religious leaders, to the biblical scholars, all right? And these guys were the intellectual and, and elite of that, of that time, that religious elite. And they had no agreement as to the nature of the Messiah. You know, a number of years ago, I wrote a pretty lengthy uh, paper, and in it I had to kind of focus in on what was, this is a very interesting assignment, what was the Jewish thinking regarding their concept of the Messiah in the first century? And what was it, what a, you know what I found fascinating? They couldn't agree with each other. Everybody had a different idea. Some thought two messiahs were going to come. You know, different groups had different ideas about the messiah. As a matter of fact, I was reading a book called The Messiah, The Developments in Earliest Judaism and Christianity. Isn't it a great topic? You guys like reading books like that, I'm sure. It's written by James Charlesworth, and he says this. He said the term and the title messiah in the Hebrew Bible refers to a present political and religious leader who was appointed by God. It was applied predominantly to a king, but also to a priest and occasionally to a prophet. So they're giving you different ideas of who the anointed one is. This carefully crafted statement was passed unanimously both by Christian and Jewish scholars. So they're all in agreement on this. Scholars concur that there was no single discernible role description for the Messiah into which a historical figure like Jesus could fit into. Do you understand now why people were having a problem? Where do you put Jesus in the equation? He did not fit in anybody's box. Now, how many know in life, when you and I have certain expectations of something, and something else happens that's outside of our realm of thinking, how many know we have a problem adjusting to what's just occurred? Does anybody understand what I'm saying? It's outside our box. We don't know how to interpret it. It just doesn't fit in what we expect. You know, a lot of people get really frustrated with God because, you know, God does something and it doesn't fit their box. Hello? You know, I don't know how many people say, I'm giving up on Christianity because it doesn't fit my box. You know, I, I'm giving up on walking with God because God just did something that didn't fit my box. Can I tell you something? God is so much bigger than any one of us in this room. He can do a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't fit your box. How are you going to handle that? And you see, the Jewish people in Jesus' day, when Jesus showed up, he didn't quite fit the box. None of them got it right. There was nobody that had an understanding of what the Messiah was really all about. That's what I'm trying to get across to you. So you can understand when Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, a whole bunch of ideas are flashing in their minds and they do not understand what is about to happen. Even his own disciples, they really anticipated, and like most common people in that day thought that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Romans and set up a physical, political rule. And you know, even after Jesus rose from the dead, this is going to shock you, what was the big question in the book of Acts chapter 1? When will the kingdom be restored to Israel? And what did Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the season. You're still locked into the wrong paradigm. Is that amazing? It is amazing how locked in we get to a certain idea. It is really hard to move us off of something once we're locked into an idea. It takes an act of God to move us outside of that. And usually what happens is God has to shatter our old paradigm. 
And that's why people go through crisis in their lives because it begins to shatter their paradigms so they're now open to what God is really trying to do in their lives. How many have had that experience where God has shattered your paradigm and all of a sudden he's moved you outside of something that you were locked into? And God says, I don't want you there. I'm trying to move you beyond all of that. That's, that you've just simplified everything. It's just, it, maybe it worked for a time to keep you going, but it's not the full picture. And that's what happened here. So Jesus' question seems quite simple. Then he goes on to say, David, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. By the way, for you that may not realize, I never realized this. I read it a lot. Psalm 110, verse 1 is quoted 35 to 36 times in the New Testament. It is the one scripture that is quoted more than any other Old Testament scripture. Psalm 110 is like Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. And here's what Jesus says. He's quoting it. He said, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declares, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? That's the question. If, you know, David is saying that the Messiah is his Lord, how can he be his son? How many go, that's a real profound question, Pastor, that I really get what Jesus is doing here. Are you going, this is losing me. You know, if you're really being honest with me, you'd be like me going, Pastor, this is losing me. This is rabbinical argumentation, and most of us don't think like rabbis. How many go, that's true, I don't even think like a rabbi. This is how they argue, okay? So what is Jesus really saying to these guys? You know what he's basically saying? You're gonna love this. He's going, how in the world can, you know, David say that the anointed one is going to be a descendant, and yet he's calling this anointed one his Lord. Now watch what happens. And I, I'm glad there's biblical scholars that are way smarter than me, so I can read what they say. And I love this guy, James Edwards. He is probably be, you know, a really good New Testament scholar, and he says this, uh, the point which hinges on a twist in wording may escape us. It escaped me. Okay? Without further explanation, the crux is in the first line. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, if we were reading this in the Hebrew language, you know, I'll translate it this way. Jehovah said to Adonai. Okay? If you were to look it up, it would go Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh. The personal name of God. So, the personal name of God. God says to Adonai. Now, how many know Adonai is not a personal name of God. The Lord said to my Lord. Now how many know in, in the Middle Ages we would say, people were called lords and ladies, right? And really it's an honorific title. So it's not a personal name. So the personal name of God. Yahweh says to Adonai. And he's, he's basically, you know, saying here, that this psalm, 110, you're going to love this, was actually sung or recited during a coronation experience. Now, when they would have kings coronated, like the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, they would coronate them as kings. You know what I mean? That was a crowning event where the, you know, you know what I'm talking about? When the king becomes the king. You know, when Queen Elizabeth passes away and there's going to be a, a new monarch in England, they're going to crown, they're going to have a coronation service. How many know that? This is when this song in the Israelite history would be sung. 
okay? This was utilized for that moment. Because in their minds, the Lord said to my Lord, they were seeing it as the Lord there being the king. You follow that thought? Okay, we've already read this. The first Lord refers to God and the second to the king. That is, at his coronation, the king of Israel was inducted as God's vice regent and seated symbolically at God's right hand. Now, if you're God's vice regent, what are you? You're God's representative on earth. You have the authority that God invests in you. So for people to rebel against the king's authority, you're actually rebelling against God. By the way, there's only, I, I can think of one office today that really kind of helps us understand this. Which office in your mind comes to your mind as I think of a vice regent of God on the planet today? Is there any church that believes that they have a leader that's the vice regent of God? The Pope is the right answer. He is the vice regent of Christ. And so what that means is that he represents Christ on earth today. That's what they're thinking. You understand that, right? The right hand signifies honor and closeness to God and legitimacy to rule with dominion and justice. But you know a problem happened. Here was the problem. With the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., by the Assyrians. And then later, the southern kingdom in Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians, so there was no monarchy. So now all of a sudden, this Psalm 110 doesn't work anymore because there's no king. Does everybody follow this? So what do people do when they now have a situation that's totally changed? They begin to realize this Psalm must mean something other than what we thought. When it was first written, we used it for this purpose, right? It originally referred to the king and, uh, and, uh, of Israel. With the destruction, Psalm 110 was reappropriated with the rights of the king frequently being transferred to the Messiah, whose kingdom would not fall as the Davidic monarchy did. In other words, this psalm in the Jewish mindset changed. They now recognize that this is not talking about an earthly king. This is talking, in a sense, about God's anointed one, the Messiah. Everybody follow this movement? You have to understand, these hundreds of years are going by. They're reframing what the psalm is really all about. It is the subsequent interpretation that is reflected in Jesus' quotation of Psalm 110, verse 1, and his question that he asked in Mark 12, 36, where the first Lord refers to God and the second to the Messiah. So... By the time Jesus' day had come, everyone had accepted the psalm as referring to the Messiah and that the original idea of the king and his coronation was but a shadow of this deeper meaning. So what's the point? Pastor, you've just rattled on here. You lost me somewhere here. I don't quite get the point. So I'm going to help you. Here's the point. That the Messiah is obviously superior to David. How many can see that that's probably one of the points? The Messiah is superior to David. He's dead. So who is this Messiah, right? And he's not just merely a descendant as Judaism popularly thought. Though the Messiah is a descendant of David's lineage, that falls short of the essence of his identity. In other words, the Messiah wasn't just going to be a descendant of David's line. He wasn't just going to be a human being. He wasn't just going to be someone born down David's descendant's line, okay? Rather, some people have tried to divorce Jesus from being God, arguing that he's just God's son. I've even heard this argument from people. There's even groups that'll say to you, Jesus is not God, he's just God's son. Has anybody ever heard that argument before? 
Some groups actually teach that. And they'll make a big distinction. They'll say Jesus does not claim to be God. He's just God's son. Okay? Now, I want to tell you how bogus that thinking is. Here's why you need to know how bogus it really is. And what Jesus was really saying and why he got crucified. This is the, is the essence of it. The Jewish people understood something we don't. If he's God's son, then he must be divine just like his father. How many think that's amazing? In other words, what Jesus was trying to tell them, listen, who, who is the Messiah? He said, if, if David calls him his son, not only his son, but his Lord, then this Messiah must be more than just a man. That's what Jesus is actually saying in this context. And look what happens. You think the Jews understood this, the Jewish people? Watch what happens when Jesus says this in John 5, 17. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Look what happens. For this reason, because he said that, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath. If you read the Old Testament, you know, how many know Sabbath breaking was a bad thing? When you read in Exodus, you know, or in the wilderness, when they broke the Sabbath, what, what was the, what was the uh, penalty for breaking the Sabbath? Does anybody know? Death. Stoning. It's a violation of the holiness and the nature of God. They took their stuff seriously, right? Not only were they going to kill him because they thought he was a Sabbath breaker, but listen to what it says. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I've got to ask a question. If you're equal with God, who are you? Yeah, you have to be God. Nobody is equal to God but God. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm God. Now, that can get people pretty fired up. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, when Jesus was on trial, we're going to get to this later on in the Gospel of Mark, he gets crucified because he says he's the Son of Man, and he's quoting from Daniel chapter 7. It's a, another Messianic passage, and he's coming with the angels, and Jesus you know, is basically saying he's God, and it, it actually gets him crucified, Okay? because they think that's a blasphemous position. But let me move on to the second reason why Jesus can make a demand on their lives. First of all, it's because he's God. I believe God can make a demand on my life because first of all, he created me. And second of all, he redeemed me. And I'm his. And so are you. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price, folks. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. He can make that demand in your life. Second reason is because human beings distort the nature of genuine faith. Now, we know we rarely get, this thing, rarely get things right as human beings. We, we usually take what God intends and we misrepresent him to the point that we actually abuse and manipulate others in the name of religion. And how many can say that religion has done a lot of damage in our world today because there's a lot of distorted concepts, not only in Christianity, but around the world, all these religions where you have these people in a state of high devotedness to their thinking of what God requires. And it's actually a form of abuse in people's lives. You see the sacrifices people make in the name of religion. Isn't that true? It's amazing. Wow. You know, Jesus said this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. Here, Jesus is warning against these biblical scholars. Look what it says here. Let's look down here. You know, the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, they just loved it when Jesus kind of told them that, you know, he was giving this explanation of Psalm 110 and they couldn't answer him. They were like, wow, we don't even know what to say to this. 
How many know when Jesus silenced the biblical scholars, the regular people thought, this is great. And then, then it says, and as he taught, Jesus says, kind of, he gives a warning now, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces. What you need to know is these guys had special, very expensive robes. When they walked into a place, they were so esteemed that people would usually stand up as a respect and honor of them. They would sit in the most prestigious places. They had no jobs. They were not employed. They just studied the Torah. And people felt it was meritorious to give them money. And so people were very generous in their giving to these scholars. And these people, you know, many times at the expense of people, made a lot of money and eventually became quite greedy. And Jesus says it right here. He said, they have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Wow. Isn't that amazing? You know what, what this is all about? This is about taking advantage of people. You can be in a position of spiritual leadership. And one of the great subtle temptations is to use that position to abuse people. Take advantage of people. Why are we doing what we're doing? Okay? So I think, you know, spiritual leaders are in a very precarious position. It's true. We have tremendous influence. And we can abuse our position. And over the years, I've seen a lot of spiritual abuse. It's really sad. Leaders taking advantage of their position. You know, let me move on to the third reason because we're running out of time here. Third reason is the value of a life. Now watch what happens, why Jesus can make the demand that he does. Jesus is now gonna move from a question to a warning to a challenge. Watch what he does here. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. What were the guys before doing? They were greedy, right? Now, people are watching the people give. Now, in, the, in those days in the temple, they would have, you know, their offering bags were totally unlike ours. They were like, you know, the shofar, the big horn of a ram, and they would stick it up in the temple, and you'd throw your money in. You know, you know and everybody had coinage, right? So if you had a lot of money, you'd throw it in. It made a lot of racket, Okay. And so you kind of had an idea what people were giving by the noise that was kind of being made as they're throwing their money into the thing, right? And watch what happens here. It says, many rich people threw in large amounts. We're always impressed by, you know, large, big, size, right? Rich, influential. But a poor widow came and put in her two very small copper coins. Now, how many notice you have a little footnote in your Bible? How many notice that? If you look down there, it says, lepta. She put in a lepta. You go, what's a lepta? Well, watch what happens here. Worth only a fraction of a penny. Now, that's what the translators are saying to try to give us the point. Really, it was a fraction of a denarii. A denarii was actually what a person got, a common earner, wage earner, made one denarii a day. A lepta was worth one sixty-fourth of a denarii. So it's only a fraction. It's like pennies, right? We don't even have pennies anymore. That's, that's how we think of them. It costs too much money to make pennies. That's why we don't have them. Do you know that, right? Costs more to make them than they are worth. That's what you've got to think of in this story. It's a good equivalency would be she threw in her two cents, right? Now, how many know when she threw them in, there wasn't a lot of racket going on in her cylinder? Ding, ding. You know, I'm sure the bookkeeper, when they're tallying the, you know, the totals in the treasury the next day, they look at these two lepkas and go, oh. It, you know, it wasn't that impressive. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, the bookkeeper doesn't run up to me and says, oh, pastor, we got two leptas, you know. And somebody threw in two cents. You know, we don't even have those anymore. That might be a big deal. I don't know. So she throws these things in, and then we notice what Jesus said. It says, he said, they all gave, he, oh, go, let me go back, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Now, how many are already sitting down going, Jesus has a totally different value system? How many have figured that out? Jesus' value system obviously is different than everybody else's. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you glad that Jesus has a different value system? He's judging things on a totally different value system. All the rest of their giving did not even equate to what the two lepkas in Jesus' equivalency. This is, this is way more. And this is why he says it. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything. And then we have this little parenthetical thought, all she had to live on. What she actually did was she had two cents to her name and she gave what she had. She gave it all. And what God is looking at is not so much how much we give. What he's looking at is how much we're hanging on to. Wow, is that a powerful thought? You see, when it gets right down to it in our lives, you see, this little story is not just about giving money. That's what we all think it's about. It's not really about that. There's something far deeper going on here. Because in Mark's gospel, what he's really trying to teach us is how to be a follower of Jesus. This book is really about how to be a disciple. This book is about discipleship. And I love what James Edwards, he says, you know, if you want to understand how significant, he said, the final Greek words of the chapter might be paraphrased. She laid down her whole life. Let me ask you a question. Who is the one who laid down his whole life? Jesus Christ. This woman is now reflecting what Jesus, she's foreshadowing what Jesus is about to do. Can I ask a question tonight? What are you laying down? A part of your life? You see, one of the reasons why I don't think we fully surrender our lives to Jesus is because we have trust issues. We're afraid to do it. Come on now. Isn't that true? That's why. We're afraid that if we gave everything to Jesus, how would we live, Pastor? How would we make it in life? How could we do this? How could we do that? Can I tell you something? God is looking into our souls tonight and he can see what we're hanging on to and what we're giving up. I'm gonna tell you why this story is so powerful to me. I'm gonna close with this. When I was 22 years old, I had just become a Christian. I had grown up in a church. I had known about Jesus, but I hadn't surrendered my life to him. It was, you know, it was more of an intellectual thing. I understood, but I hadn't really surrendered. And I had a hard time realizing that I was a sinner. But you know, after a few failures, you fight, figure that out. You're a sinner, right? And you, know, you could confess your sins and then go back and do it again, you know, kind of a thing. That's kind of where I was living. But here's the deal. I came to a place of crisis in my life. Remember I talked about how paradigms change? You have to be in a place of crisis. I gave my life to Jesus. And now I was working in a restaurant. I was cooking. And uh, I remember this. I was praying. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do with the rest of my life? I was just at that stage trying to make a vocational choice. And I was crying out to God. 
there was about five of us about the same age in our church. We were friends, you know. One was quite successful. He'd grown up in a Christian church. He was an engineer. He worked for Shell Oil. He was doing really well. I had a friend from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was living in the States at the time. And uh, he wanted to be an evangelist. And so he said, yeah, I got some friends. He said, we used to go and pray. And he said, one time we went out and we fasted and prayed. And, you know, God really met with us. So I said, hey, well, why don't we do that? Because you know, I was at that, you know, kind of an indecision place in my life. And so we made a decision. Uh, Craig and I were going to go up to the mountains and just kind of hang out together and seek God together. And so I booked my time off of work and I was all set to go. Don't you love it when your friends back out on you? And he did. And I was by myself and I decided, you know, I'm going anyways. Because I'm, I'm now committed to this course of action. So I went up to the mountains. And when I got up there, God kind of impressed upon me I needed to just begin to fast and pray. And so I stayed for five days fasting and praying. That's how long I could last, to be honest. I was going to stay a week. But five days of solitude, silence, and no food is not a fun experience. You know, you can say, well, that's, isn't that blessed? It was good in one way, but it was sure not so healthy. You know, like, you know, it's a death to yourself, right? But I'm reading the New Testament. I mean, I'm sleeping a lot. I'm reading the New Testament. And when I'm reading through the New Testament, what I'm discovering is the nature of biblical Christianity. You know, a lot of times we're distracted by a lot of other books. I would tell you, just read the New Testament. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. You'll find out what God's really like. I'm up there for five days praying and fasting, reading my Bible, and I'm asking God, what do you want me to do with my life? You know what God did? He never answered me a single thing. He never told me about what I should do. I was so disappointed. Anybody ever have that experience where you're crying out to God and God doesn't answer you? You know, isn't that frustrating? Anybody find that frustrating? I, you know, sometimes I say, you know, why don't you just show up? I can ask the question and give me the answer. When I was younger, that's why we asked you to think. This is really a drag. I wish you were in the f- physical person sitting across my desk. I said, Jesus, just tell me what to do, right? But you don't learn trust that way. So I'm up there for five days, and I, and I walk away with a sense that, you know, I'm, I'm seeking God. I want you to know something. God hears those prayers. Three months later, I'm on my way to work one night to the restaurant. I, I'm working an evening shift. And I just have this, I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you just go, I can't do this anymore. I don't know why. I just felt like something came over me. I felt empty. I felt like, you know, this isn't what I should be doing. There's something else I should be doing in my life. I go in, I get my whites on, my cooking whites on. I'm sitting down, I'm having a bite to eat before I start my shift. And um, all of a sudden, I notice in the electrical room all this noise and I look and this, you know, arcing happening, you know, like electric panels are just, there's electricity flying across the electrical room. This is really kind of scary. I thought maybe I should go in there and flip some switches. Later I found out if I did that, I wouldn't be here today. I'd have been electrocuted. But I got everybody out of the restaurant. This is a very nice restaurant, you know, big restaurant, you know, very fancy restaurant I cooked at. We got everybody out of the restaurant. They couldn't turn the power off to the building when the fire, you know, because it created a fire, right? For 30 minutes, the fire raged unabated. Finally, the power got turned off so they could start spraying water. By then, it was too late. The restaurant was just toast. It burnt right to the ground. You know, I don't have a job. How many know when God wants to direct your life, it's no problem? If he has to burn restaurants down to get your attention, he's going to do it, right? I'm just going, hey. You know, sometimes people wonder, why did this happen? Well, sometimes God is redirecting a person's life, and he's using very dramatic means to get their attention. I'm telling you, my job came to an end, and within... A few months, I realized, you know, I, I, I want to do something different than cooking. And this is what happened. 
I, w- I decided I was going to look into the Air Force because I had some university. I decided I'd finish my university. I didn't have the resources, but I knew the military would pay for it, right? They will if you join and serve so many years. So I thought I would do that. And, you know, everything was going great. I had passed all the tests. They wanted me to sign on the dotted line. I was going in to sign on the dotted line the next day, and I'm reading in my Bible because I'm a Christian now, and I'm praying. I'm saying, God, direct my steps, right? I've been praying and asking for months. Obviously, God is answering because, you know, a restaurant burns to the ground. It's pretty dramatic. And then I read the story of the poor widow. And here's what God spoke into my spirit. Because I was thinking in my mind, you know, I'll get this great job. I'll make all this resources. I'll support the church. That is a great thought, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it. But in my case, God used the story and said, I'm not interested in that. What I want from you is everything. I want your everything. And at that point, I realized God was actually calling me to actually go into ministry full time. It was part of God's movement. And, you know, I didn't sign the dotted line for the military. Instead, within a few weeks, I was enrolled in a Bible college studying to be a pastor. It was how God directed my life. It's a very powerful story. But in all of our lives, we come to these issues about trust. And I really believe it's very profound. You know, why can Jesus make this demand on our lives for everything? Well, he says it this way. What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what can you give in exchange for your soul? And you know, there's a sense that when you and I give our lives to Christ and the gospel, we're going to find our lives. And I can honestly say that I have never regretted that decision for one moment. I've never regretted the fact that I said yes to Jesus and said, I'm going to just give you my all. And you know, that was a very defining point in my young life, and it shaped my entire life. And so I think there's moments in our lives when God's Spirit begins to speak to us like this and say, hey, this is what I'm wanting of you. And so I'm going to have a stand as we close in prayer tonight. And I, and I really felt impressed, and I shared this this morning, and I asked people, I said, listen, how many here? With your head bowed, I'm going to pray real quick, because I know I'm just a few minutes over. Just with your heads bowed, let me ask the question to you today. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I honestly can sense tonight I do have some trust issues with God. And that, you know what, to really give my everything to him is a little scary thought for me right now. But when I think about it, it's really because do I know him that well? Do I know that he's that loving? Do I know that he's that good? That if I gave everything I was to him, everything I am to him, what, what lies before me? Do you know if I really believe God is as great and as powerful as he is, there should be no fear in doing this. But yet I, I feel this apprehension. I feel a little bit of fear inside of me. And maybe that's you tonight. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. Yeah, there's quite, a, there's quite a few of you just raising your hands. That's great. You know, most of the church raised their hands Sunday morning. I mean, earlier today at 11 o'clock. I mean, I would say about 80% of the church raised their hand. They said, you know what? I have a little bit of fear inside of me to really say, God, here I am. I give you everything I am. But can I tell you that if you do that, it doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor. That's not what I'm saying tonight. It doesn't mean, you know, what it, what it really means is this that you're giving God full rights over your life to guide your steps to have him do whatever he wants to do with your life. It's really surrendering your will to his. And you know, somebody chatted with me, said, you know, Pastor, I'm always looking for these dramatic moments. And I said to him, you know how you live this life? It's a daily surrender. That's why you read the Bible every day. It's a daily thing. You know, but sometimes we have to be stirred and reminded you know, I need to make this decision. Lord, I belong to you. 
I'm 100% yours. Do what you want to do with me today, tomorrow, the next day. I'm going to trust you with my life. I think you are so much wiser than I am. You're going to do so much better by me than I could ever choose to do by myself. That you're going to actually fulfill the purpose in which you designed and created me. What a beautiful thought. And that I'm going to find the greatest expressions of joy and happiness that I'll ever find when I deny myself and give myself fully to you. You're going to fulfill your divine purposes the very reason why you designed and created me. You're going to fulfill those things in my life. What a beautiful thought. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, you know what, I've never given my life to Jesus, but I want it today. You know, I, I heard you say it. He's not just a man, he's God. He's not only the one who created me, he's the one who died for me. I want to know him as my Savior. And I've never done that before. Is that you tonight? Just raise your hand and I'll pray with you. Okay. God bless you. It's great. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight for these beautiful people that are here tonight. They're listening and they're hearing your voice speak into their souls, Lord. And you're addressing their greatest fears and apprehensions, Lord, that if they really trusted you, that something terrible would happen. But the reality is, when we really trust you, something good is about to happen. And I just pray tonight that we will have no fear. We'll have absolute confidence in your goodness, in your grace, in your mercy, in your love, Father. And I just pray, Lord, even as my brother opened his heart to you and said, Lord, I want to know you. I want to serve you with all of my heart. Lord, as we've heard your wonderful message of love, even as we receive you, we invite you into our lives as our Lord, as the Messiah, as the Savior as not only our creator, but our redeemer. One who saved us from our sins, who delivered us from the power of sin and death, delivered us from the power of sin and Satan. Lord, I pray tonight that your grace would fill our hearts to overflowing with such great joy that doing your will will be our chief delight. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.